Hello, I'm Amanda Griffiths, the Quality Director at Voyage Care, and welcome back to Season 2 of our podcast, where the theme is quality. Today's episode is part two of the two-part episode where myself and Andrew Cannon, the CEO here at Voyage Care, will be talking about our thoughts on CQC ratings and the DNR orders during COVID-19. I think one of the most significant things that I remember doing in my eight years here was when we wrote our safeguarding policy. And there's a very clear um, couple of paragraphs in there about making unwise decisions because there were some big things that would keep evolving and coming round. You know what? People can make an unwise decision if they want to. Yeah. It goes back to that. We have to tick the boxes of compliance, but that's our role. The role for the people we support is we give them a bit of advice. They still want to make that unwise decision. No different to our teenage children who make unwise decisions every Friday night when they go (laughs) up. But we need to give the people we support those same opportunities. It's part of life, isn't it? And that's what I think we do so well. We make people. It's a difference between just existing and having a real life and living a life. And I think we do that well. I really do think we do. Yeah. I mean, it's not always easy either. So it would be easier to do none of these things, right? It would be easier to keep people in a service and... You know, it would be not in our services, but you hear elsewhere about this kind of idea of the chemical cash, medicating people, so they're kind of compliant and all that sort of stuff. I did, I went on a, a visit once. Um, it was a team at Summerfield Court who invited me, and we went on a day out um, in the Peak District. And they had a great philosophy. A lot of the people we support were uh, wheelchair users. And this is the Peak District, right? And the clue's in the name. So we were getting to some pretty kind of places that weren't easily accessible. But the attitude of the guys at Sunfield Court was, we make the impossible possible. I just thought, that is fantastic. Yeah. That is fantastic because it's possible for us. Why should it not be possible for everybody? Why should everybody not have that opportunity? I thought that was a great way of thinking about it. In terms of people that we have to work with and things that we have to do, for many people, they are seen as really burdensome and a great amount of work. What I'm really proud of is that as an organisation, we treat um, the requirements of any of the regulators, um, the requirements from the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, through the pandemic, the whole issues around um, COVID guidance, we treat that as our business as usual. It, it, It underpins it. It's never a big chore. It is something we do without skipping a heartbeat because we have a process for doing it we are well versed the the team are great they use a gap analysis process so they work methodically through things they can identify where the changes need to happen and i think it is a place if you're going to deliver a real great quality of care and support they can never be the mountains they have to be the valleys because the mountains have to be those great things And actually, the key issues we've seen with many of these external parties who very much tell us what to do is that when you are confident of your quality, you are then quite confident to stand up to them as well. Mm. And that is really important because we cannot just accept when people say you have to do X, Y and Z because 
quite often the people who write the regulations, the guidance to meet that, all of the guidance we've seen for the past 18 months, they never look at it from the point of view of the people we support. They look at it as a purely um, mechanical process that they want to tick boxes. And as we've said several times, we are not in the business of ticking boxes. We're in the business of giving people a life. And so therefore, if something is not going to work or is going to restrict people, it is so important that we speak up. And it's something we've done several times, isn't it, over the last few months? Yeah, the big thing that springs to mind is uh, the uh, do not attempt resuscitation, the blanket orders that were placed on people. So at the start of the pandemic, we had a number of GP surgeries and practices and, and um, kind of clinical stakeholders who, who had written unilaterally to people who support the services to say, right, you, this person's do not attempt resuscitation. In some cases, that was done to people who had capacity. I mean, it's scandalous everywhere, but where somebody has capacity, it's like somebody writing to you or I and saying it. And we led on it for the sector, and it actually blew up, and it led to questions of the Prime Minister and stuff like that. We took legal action against those surgeries and those practices um, to get those overturned. So for me, that's not a kind of a heroic thing. That's just a, well, what would you do if somebody wrote to your son or daughter or your husband or wife and said, Oh, by the way, you're very poorly, we're not going to attempt resuscitation. You know what I mean? You go, you, you fight it to the noun. So for me, the sort of that's the kind of minimum expectation that we stand up for people we support and that they have the same rights as, as everybody else. But that's another kind of thing that's absolutely scandalous. So, you know, that's when it works badly, when people think about who people we support lives as being somehow worthless or 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 treat people not as in, not as individuals any longer. Um when working with other stakeholders and external professionals, when it works well, you've got multiple disciplinary team meetings that put the person that's being supported at the centre, give them a voice, design services around them, not just provided by us, but provided by other stakeholders. That's fantastic, that's wonderful. And in terms of the role that like, regulators play in that, I mean, Cambridge Spectrum Wales are quite interesting, actually. So I'm, I'm the registered individual for every one of our services, along with the service manager. So that's why my name's on the, on the on the reports and, and we we do that for a number of reasons we do it so that i share the, the burden and the risk so if we get something wrong you know i'm on the i'm on the hook for it I, i'm pretty sure that's unique actually amongst the providers i don't think i don't think anybody else does that but anyway um i don't say that to be like oh i'm with the big the heroes but I just say that because as i think about the kind of services services like um care inspector at wells what they do is they um Whoever that is the sort of senior, most senior person in the business has to go and visit services every quarter and do a, and do a report. And it's something that I've been doing in, in our services in North and South Wales. I think that's quite interesting, actually. It's quite grounding. And I, it means I pull files for people we support. I pull employment records. I go and visit services. I talk to people we support. I think they're happy. It's difficult to replicate that at a real scale, but I, I think it's quite encouraging that regulators are thinking about that, thinking about how connected to you. Because one of the things when I go and visit services, is the manager on the floor? Are they on the floor and do they know everyone? And are they interacting with everyone? You know, um, and when they're not and they're in their office and they're doing paperwork, this is why I'm so keen to pull away paperwork to remove the, the burden where they're trapped in their office and we've stuck them to the chair, that's when I get really nervous about the quality of, of support because I think it's our job to sort of liberate them. So 
think sometimes regulators can think in interesting ways. I think often stakeholders can work in ways which are really liberating and and sort of accelerate and uh, can act as a multiplier effect on the good work on the good work that we do. But yeah, we we fight really hard for. I'm I'm dead proud of the way we fight for the people we support. Our legal department's very active in that actually. Yeah, they are, and they are incredibly um, supportive to managers as well when managers have issues. Because actually, yes, we are a really high quality provider, but it's really important that we work alongside local professionals as well. And unfortunately, you do find that there will be times when people are less um, happy to engage and sometimes it does take that that letter to go, reminding people of their obligations. And we never do it, never ever, to kind of say we're pushing. It's always with the best interests of people yeah. support. If they need that care and support, we have to make it happen. That's what our role is. Yeah. And so again, it's another great example of that the centre being connected with the people who are out there delivering that care and support. Yeah. And people not having to struggle on their own. You know, they could try for weeks, but actually sometimes one letter will elicit the response that's needed. And again, it really is about people's support that we do need to make sure that everybody in their circle of support is engaged. Yeah. And that is so important. It's not something we do all the time, but it's not a no. tool we're afraid to deploy either. No. Is it? Sometimes in order to achieve really top class quality outcomes for people, you've got to be hard and you've got to fight on their behalf, as you've already said about the DNA CPRs. Sometimes we have to take that responsibility for them. Mm. That's what our role is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That was tough. That was really tough at the start. That was horrible at the start of the pandemic. Because they were in lots of different geographies, those letters. They came from all over the place. Okay. And it's just sort of, one of them is kind of depressing because it reinforces how, how people think about people with learning disability now. But the other is, the other I feel, I feel happy that we were able to escalate the issue and and get it overturned and and fight on their behalf it's, it's a good thing it's a really good thing i think the role of the regulator is interesting i think we have to have a regulation a set time you can't just have kind of people running around doing their own thing you have to have somebody who sets standards who measures against it who uh, has a national remit who has a, a kind of a voice with government and all that sort of stuff so that's a good thing i like the regulations underpinning what we do because it's very clear what we have to do and it's very easy. I mean, our, our outcomes as they stand tell us that we are consistently delivering way and above. Yeah. So actually, we find the regulations and the guidance very easy to tick the box of. Um, the more important bit, though, is about how you apply it for individuals. Mm. Meeting those regulations is very, very easy. And I think we do it very well. Um, you have to be very pedantic. I think, you know, one of the biggest changes we made many moons ago here was when we wrote our policies to say, to use very firm language, you must, you will. It's very important because then it's very clear that this is what will happen. Because a law is a law, isn't it? You know, yeah. a regulation is a regulation. You wouldn't go into Tesco's and put a frozen chicken up your jumper. So in the same way, you wouldn't break the law of a care home. 
You wouldn't. It's a law. Yeah. So what's really easy is that we then interpret those laws. Managers and the teams find it very easy because we write simple processes. Yeah. The issue is not the regulations and the processes. The issue is the volume of them that are yeah. put out to us. It is volume, not what's actually there. And I think managers do that. They need to just, that needs to be easy, easy to achieve so that their time and energy is spent on the person-centred care. I agree. And making life special for people. I think it's something you and the team are brilliant at. So embarrassing enough, but I think particularly through the course of the pandemic, but even well before the pandemic, I think you and the team are brilliant at taking really complex guidance and regulation, distilling it down into the kind of here's what that means for you and here's what you need to do. And that, that's the Karina's team, the quality development right, team brilliant. are just exceptional at that. Fantastic. What role do you think training has to play for us? Because we've worked hard over the last few years on, on defining specialisms, which has been a big change, I think, over the last sort of three or four years for us, particularly. And with that comes different requirements, you know, whether it's brain injury rehabilitation or acuity autism or, or very specific things like powder willy syndrome and stuff like that. I mean, training has to play a, a central role in the delivery great care and support in those areas as well across everywhere but in those areas particularly yeah it does and again that's a that, that's a development thing so if we look back over the years that we you know where we are now we are no longer an organization that just delivers the mandatory requirements mm -hmm. to tick the boxes and keep the regulator happy what we've done with the specialisms is we've looked at what people need to know need to understand and how they need to be competent to deliver that care. So we're not ticking a box to say somebody sat in front of a computer and done something um, to achieve a certificate. What we've done is we've really driven that down in terms of our specialisms. So if you look at the specialist behaviour support specialism, what we really learned um, in, in terms of the delivery of that was actually for supporting people who have got a forensic history or have been in uh, some kind of mental hospital placement yeah. and are moving back out, we can't just deliver a standard induction. So you will see the people that work in those services will have weeks in a face-to-face -face environment. And it's not just doing health and safety and safeguarding training we're actually investing a lot of time on resilience training mm. um it's not just mapper training we deliver the mapper training but then they get individualized person specific mapper training so they know exactly how to manage a person that's not coping with a situation yeah. with them so i think what we've done um and what contributes to our quality outcomes is we've looked at, again, putting the person we support at the centre of everything we do and delivering that training and making sure people are competent to support that person safely. I think that makes such a big difference. But I think in terms of organisational culture, if you look at, um, if you take the autism specialism, we haven't only delivered that for the people working on the front line, We've said everybody in the organisation needs to undertake that training. So we are an organisation who understands all about autism. We've not just left that to the people on the front line. So we all understand. And that means that 
it's a maintenance teams or a trainer or anybody going into a service, they understand what matters and what can negatively impact somebody. Yes. Because the frontline team can be brilliant and can deliver all that training, but then you get a noisy workman coming in, drilling, and completely upset someone. So it's been really important for us that everybody understands what matters. And I think what we've done is we've moved from pure training to a real place that we are delivering learning for people, we're developing people, and we're making sure people are competent to do the role, which is so much more than just a training exercise, isn't it? Yeah. So, Andrew, what do you think is the most important thing about our managers who are working out there managing our income schemes? Look, we could talk for as long as we want about the role that group support plays or the role that you or I play and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, great quality care and support gets delivered in our services. And it gets done by people at the front line who work incredibly hard and make lots of sacrifices to do it in often very challenging circumstances in a role that can be can be really, really difficult, led by managers who take on those roles and responsibilities as well and have to steer the team. I think the role of our local managers and service managers in, in, in this space is, I mean, it's incredible because they have to recruit a team, they have to lead a team, they have to communicate with the team, they have to inspire the team, they have to create stable, effective teams, they have to coach the team. Have to train the team, they have to sell the service, they have to work with local stakeholders, they have to keep up to date. I mean, if you made a list of all the things that are managers or service managers' responsibilities, it's almost kind of inconceivably large the amount of things that we're asking people to do. And the fact that we have, for the most part, a very stable group of managers, not, not everywhere, but a, but, a, but a very stable group of managers, and we have local teams who are willing to go above and beyond but at the beginning middle and the end of the day this is where quality gets this is where quality gets delivered and where it gets done i mean absolutely no doubt about that no i agree 100 percent. when you look at for each of our managers the way they oversee what in effect is somebody's home yeah. and they ensure that all the complex stuff that needs to be done just happens. They really are like those proverbial swans, aren't they? Yeah. They're very elegant in the way they do it. The, the, you are so right. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our focus on quality, please visit our website at www.voyagecare.com.